Looking at Philippians chapter 3 today, God's put something on my heart to start off this message with. The title of this message is The Surpassing Value of Knowing Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, you can follow along with me if you'd like. Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the spirit of Christ Jesus, and glory in God, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and be conformed unto his death in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, Christ will reveal it to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have obtained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose glory is their shame, whose God is their appetite, who put their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the bodies of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things unto himself. Philippians chapter 3. I love this passage of scripture. This passage of scripture, I think, has been more dear and near to my heart than any other passage in the Bible over the last couple years. I would take the book of Philippians with me when I worked a security job in Thousand Oaks. I worked the night shift and I would walk around the halls as I was working there with the book of Philippians, reading it over and over and over, meditating on God's word and seeking him in prayer. And this was one passage that has stuck with me more than any other. I love how Paul talks about pressing on, straining, going for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I've probably quoted those verses a thousand times in the last couple years. 
forgetting what lies behind. How many times does your past try to come back and haunt you in the present? Your past sins, your past mistakes, your past life. And Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on. I love that. Philippians is a book of joy. About 20 times Paul mentions the word joy in this book. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. He's writing from a Roman prison, and he's rejoicing that the gospel is going forth. Even though he's in prison, he's witnessing to the Roman guards. The whole Praetorium guard, he says, has heard about Jesus Christ and is coming to faith. Paul gets word that others are preaching Christ, and he says in chapter 1, some are doing it from envy, from envy and even strife. But he goes, you know what? At least they're preaching the gospel. So I'll rejoice. He's so glad that the good news is getting out, that Jesus Christ is being proclaimed, and so he can rejoice. And the reason that this book is a book of joy is because it mentions the name Jesus over 50 times. Did you know that? Many know the book of Philippians as the book of joy, but they don't know that how Jesus Christ is mentioned over and over and over, 50 times. If someone were to ask you if you knew someone who was determined, someone who lived with a purpose, someone who was striving for the kingdom of God, who comes to your mind? Think of someone in the Bible. Think of someone in your life determined, lives with a purpose, with a resolve, striving for the kingdom of God. Here's three people that came to my mind as I was putting this teaching together. The first one that comes to my mind is Ray Comfort. You guys heard of Ray Comfort? Constantly passing out tracks. I heard him recently say that over a period of 12 years, he went street witnessing every day. Pretty amazing, right? Now he's 71, believe it or not, continuing to get the gospel out. I think he goes every week to Huntington Beach, faithfully preaching the word of God. Second person that comes to my mind, of course, is Pastor Joe. He's a man on a mission, constantly teaching and preaching, evangelizing, counseling, doing podcasts, funerals, weddings, going to Texas, New York, Idaho, Mexico. I mean, he's not here today. I think he's preaching right now as I'm talking. Pretty amazing. He's determined to get the good news out. Many of us wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Pastor Joe. Many listening by live stream, podcast, CD, wouldn't be who they are in Christ if it wasn't for Pastor Joe. He baptized me when I was a little child. He baptized my wife when she was little. He officiated our wedding. He encouraged me to get into the ministry. Where would we be without our brother Joe? Third person that comes to my mind, of course, is the Apostle Paul. As I've said several times, that verses, and the verses in chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, when he talks about pressing on towards the goal for the prize, that's determination. He's not letting anything get in the way of his goal. He's not letting his past. He's not letting his present. He's not letting anxiety, worry, any distractions get in the way of winning people to Christ and moving forward in his relationship with the Lord. This is where my heart's been for the last couple years. And so today's teaching is me looking over some of my past notes that I've shared at the men's retreat, that I've shared teaching in Texas, teaching at the Ventura County Rescue Mission as a chaplain to guys who are 
getting out of jail and coming off the streets, what teaching, what message do I have for them? What hope do I have for them? Look at verse 8, Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What do Ray Comfort, Pastor Joe, the Apostle Paul, and anyone who has a resolve and a determination to preach the gospel, get the word out to live for Christ? They value Jesus Christ. They understand the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Another way to put it is Jesus Christ is everything. To Ray Comfort, to Pastor Joe, to the Apostle Paul, and what I submit to you today and hopefully in your life, he is everything to you. That there's nothing in contention with that. There's no close second. Not father, not, father, not mother, not wife, not child, not brothers, not sisters, not anything. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why he could say in verse 23 of chapter 1, he has a desire to depart to be with Christ for that is very much better. That's why he could say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who's living? Is it you or Christ in you? I tell the guys at the rescue mission where I work, I say, when I used to live in my old house, I rented that house. I didn't own the house. The landlord, he owned the house. I couldn't go around the house painting the walls whatever color I wanted to paint them. I couldn't go into the front yard and rip out trees and rip out bushes, even though as hideous as they were, I couldn't take them out unless I asked the landlord first, unless I got his permission first. I couldn't just go around altering things to the house because he's the landlord. He's the owner. He's in charge. Paul says, I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own anymore. Glorify God in your bodies. You're, you're not your own. If you know Jesus Christ, he is the owner of you and of me. We don't just go around willy-nilly doing whatever we want to do. We submit to his lordship, his kingship, his authority in our lives. Minute by minute, day by day, we cry out to him and say, Lord, your will be done, not my will be done. How do you want me to live my life? Where do you want me to work? What do you want me to do in ministry? How do you want me to serve you? Here's my gifts. Here I am, Lord. Send me. And it says in Ephesians chapter 3, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that you ask or think, according to the power that is at work within you. Sit back and watch and see what God will do in your life when you submit your life completely over to him. And you just say, here am I, Lord. Minute by minute, I'm entrusting my life to you. That's what it means to be a Christian. Amen. Is this how we talk about our Savior? Do we long to be with him? Before, when I was teaching on Philippians, I said, if you put a button, if I put a button right in front of you and you could push it right now and you could go straight to heaven, would you push that button? And I said, I think the Apostle Paul would. I think he would, couldn't quick enough 
put his hand on that button and push it because he says, I want to go be with Christ. It's very much better. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Many of us were too distracted by the things of this world. We're holding on to the things of this world too tightly. Yes, God has given us everything to enjoy. Yes, he's given us friends and family and maybe a job or even some money or whatever it may be. In and of themselves, many of these things are not bad. They're not wrong. But if we're focused on these things, if we're holding on to them too tightly, it can get in the way of us seeing the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is above all. He has all authority. He upholds all things by the power of his word. He holds the keys to hell and to Hades. He conquered Satan. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He is alive. He is ruling and reigning. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the bright and morning star. He is our great God and Savior who, we're, who we eagerly wait for. He deserves all of our praise, all glory, all honor, and every part of our being should long to be with him. My desire, my goal when preaching the word of God and teaching and encouraging is for people to see Jesus Christ for who he is. Every teaching that I've done in the past couple years, and by God's grace, God just opened up the floodgates. He said, Nick, you can go work at the rescue mission and be a chaplain. Every Thursday morning, you can preach the word of God. Every Tuesday night, people are going to come to your house and you get to preach the word of God. The rescue mission gives me two other opportunities to teach during the week. That's four teachings a week that I get to pour into the word of God, that I get to point people to Christ. And I'm begging and I'm pleading with them because many of them say, no, I don't want that. I'm fine. I want to live in addiction. Maybe I'm just here because my family sent me here. My wife sent me here. My brother sent me here. And I'm begging and pleading with them to turn to Jesus Christ and live. I'm trying to show them the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, that nothing in this world compares to him. I love what Peter says in Matthew 19:27. He says, we have left everything to follow you. That's what it means to be a Christian. You must be willing to leave everything to follow Jesus. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We must deny ourselves. I typed in on Google recently, what should be the ultimate goal of life? I found three answers that came up, three different people. First one was, build sufficient wealth, which I can use to take care of my family so I can be freed of that responsibility and finally have time to focus on doing things I like without having to worry about living up to anyone's expectations. That was their goal. Second person. I have always wanted to answer this question. Right now, at this moment, I'm scared of only one thing in my life. When I will be breathing for the last few times, I don't want to die with regrets. The idea of dying with a feeling of regret sends shivers to my bones. The third response. I have realized our life has no goal to strive for. It isn't a means to achieve any target or fulfill any purpose. You haven't got this life to do any greater good. It doesn't matter to anyone. Either we die or we live. It's completely pointless. But now, when we have got this one to live, this life is the only goal in, it, in itself. 
Pretty sad, right? Apart from Jesus, there is no hope. There is no peace. There is no future. There is no heaven. There is no forgiveness of sins. There's just regret. There's just shivers being sent down people's bones. There's no goals in life to strive for. And if people do strive for things, if they do strive for money, if they do strive for pleasure, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? What if someone walked in here right now and said, I'll give you $50 billion if you deny Christ? Here you go. You can have it all. I tell the guys at the rescue mission that when I'm teaching. I I told them that the other day. I said, it doesn't matter how much anyone can give me. I'm not denying Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. He is worth more than anything to me. And it's so sad to see responses like this. That's why it's our job to get the good news out. It's our job to share the love of Jesus Christ, the hope that we can have in him. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 19, I want to take you on a little journey to show you some people in the scriptures that I believe truly valued Jesus Christ for who he truly is. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. It says, and he entered and was passing through Jericho. That's Jesus. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. Verse 3, he was trying to see who Jesus was. He was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly, or received him rejoicing. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Pretty amazing. He calls Jesus Lord. He receives him with joy. He's ready to give up half of his possessions. And remember, he's rich. Who knows, today, say, that's millions of dollars, maybe. I'm willing to give up half my possessions, Jesus. And not only that, if I've defrauded anyone, I'll give back four times as much. Do you think Zacchaeus ever defrauded anybody? He probably defrauded a lot of people. And if he's giving back four times as much, when I was reading this passage, I thought, is he going to have anything left when he's done? Maybe not. But that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to see the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. He doesn't put any more value on the things of this world. I had my wealth, I was rich, and now he's saying, I'm willing to be poor for you. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 27. I believe John the Baptist understood this as well. John chapter 1, verse 27. John says, it is he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
I'm not even worthy to bow down and tie Jesus' shoes. That's what John the Baptist is saying. That's how much he means to me. John chapter 3, verse 26 through 30. Let me just read the whole passage, the surrounding verses. John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Jesus is the great I am. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He says in John 8:58, before Abraham was born, I am. So John says he existed even before me. Turn over to John chapter 3, verse 26. It says, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, I must decrease. I love that. He must become greater, I must become less. But John, all these disciples that were following you, all these people that you were ministering to, you had these great crowds, you had this great following, the spotlight was on you, John, for quite a while. John, they're now all going after Jesus. And what's John's response? I'm rejoicing. I'm full of joy. He must increase. I must decrease. Praise God. They're all following Jesus as they should be. Pretty amazing. John acknowledges the value of Jesus. Turn over to John chapter 4. The woman at the well. Verse 25. The woman said to him, that's Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus just spent quite a while trying to show her that it was he standing right in front of her, and it kept going right over her head. He goes, I'm going to give you living water. You'll never thirst again. And she's like, where's the well at? Where's this well? I don't want to have come, keep coming out here to get water. She's not getting it. Then in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, Am he. he just says it point blank. I am the Messiah. He reveals himself to her. What does she do in verse 27? At this point, his disciples came. It's actually in verse 28, I think. At this point, his disciples came and marveled that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? Jewish men were not supposed to speak to women, especially Samaritan women. You don't speak to a Samaritan woman. They were like lower class some even refer to them as dogs. They were half-breeds. And here Jesus went out of his way to go to Samaria. He was on a divine appointment to win this woman to the Lord. What did she do in verse 28? The woman left her water pot, went into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Look down at verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him, because of the woman 
Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. I love that. She drops the water pot. I don't have time for this anymore. Runs into the city. It doesn't say run, but I don't think she was walking slowly. I think she was pretty excited about who she just met, and she wanted to tell people about Jesus. And I often say I don't think she had a really good education. She probably didn't know all the apologetic arguments. She just went into the city and said, look, here's the Christ. Here he is. Go meet him. And some of us, we just need to go get the message out, don't we? We might not know the Hebrew. We might not know the Greek. We might not have a bachelor's or master's or doctor degree or whatever. But do we know Christ? Let's proclaim his name. Do we have, we had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Let's get the good news out. Look at John chapter 6. We can keep going. I'll give you a couple more. John chapter 6, verse 66, which ironically talks about apostasy. John chapter 6, verse 66. It says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Many of the crowds left. Many of Jesus' followers were not following him anymore. He said, you must eat my, blood, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to have eternal life if you want to enter heaven. And they're going, what is this man talking about? And he says it several times. And Jesus doesn't sugarcoat things. He just says it how it is. He's testing people's hearts. He wants to see if they're following him for the right reasons. He wants to see if they're following him for the bread, for the miracles, or if they're really following him for eternal life. And so he tests their hearts, and he sees right here who's truly following him. Many of the the disciples weren't. But you get to verse 67, Jesus said, therefore, to the 12, so he now looks at his 12 disciples, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We're not going anywhere, Jesus. You mean more to us than everything. You are the precious Holy One of God. We're following you no matter what the cost. He revealed their true hearts. They weren't in it just for the miracles. They weren't in it just for the food. They were in it for eternal life, for Jesus Christ. That's awesome. Go to John chapter 12. Let me show you two more. John chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. You remember, Lazarus was in the tomb four days. His body was stinking. Jesus went up. It's the verse where Jesus says he wept. It says Jesus wept. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus comes out. He's still got the tomb, the cloth all around him. And now Lazarus is alive and Jesus is gonna go have supper with him. Verse two, so they made him a supper there and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he had said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put in it. 
Jesus therefore said, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. One article I looked up said that this costly ointment, this perfume could cost in modern currency as much as $54,000. It was 11 months wage, 300 denarii. Did she see the surpassing value of Jesus Christ? She's willing to pour out perhaps a year's earnings right over Jesus. Judas didn't understand the value of Jesus. He was willing to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, but Mary understood it. That's why I love the Gospels. It often highlights the women. Everyone else in that day was overlooking the women. Their testimony in the court of law meant nothing, but to Jesus they meant everything, and he highlights them throughout his ministry. It's awesome, and they're the first ones at the tomb when he's there rising from the grave. Amen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Let me show you one more. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. It says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I love verse 26. But wait a minute, wasn't Moses born way before Jesus ever came into this earth born in that manger in Bethlehem but yet it says in verse 26 considering the reproach of Christ considering the reproach of the Messiah he was looking to the anointed one he was looking to Jesus and realized he's my treasure I consider him more valuable than all the riches of Egypt and he was second in charge he was right below Pharaoh who knows if he might have been the next Pharaoh do you think he had a lot of money sure. you think he had access to a lot of things and he chose rather to endure the ill treatment with the people of God. I love that. He was looking forward to Christ as his true treasure. One prayer that I've been praying over and over lately is, Father, help me to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I believe that more that we understand truly who Jesus is, the more that we grow in, in the knowledge of him, the more we'll understand truly who he is and we'll be able to, as it says in Ephesians 3.8, comprehend the unfathomable riches of Christ. Let's turn back to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's a Christian, right, when he's writing this. He was once a terrorist, essentially, hunting down Christians, throwing them in prison, trying to get them to blaspheme. God radically changes him. He writes half the New Testament, and we're still talking about him today. Pretty amazing. And I love how Paul says, if God can use me, he can use anyone. I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. I love how I can share that with guys at the rescue mission. They go, oh, I don't know if God can save me. I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've sinned a lot. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, right? And he used the Apostle Paul, a terrorist, to write half the New Testament. God can save him. God can save anyone. Paul's saved here. And look at what he says in 
Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says that I might know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship or the sharing of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Hallelujah. Paul already knows Jesus Christ, but he wants to know him more, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and be conformed unto his death. He's saying, I want to know him so much that if, I'm, if that means suffering, then bring it on. If that means being thrown in jail, bring it on. If that means death, then bring it on. Because I want a fellowship with Jesus. And he suffered while he was here on earth. He was persecuted. He was maligned. And ultimately, he was crucified. And I want to follow in his footsteps. I want to know Jesus Christ. Is that the mentality we have in our Christian walk with the Lord? Or are we constantly running away from the battle? Are we constantly running away from possible persecution? Yeah, Paul says there was a time when he was let down in a basket when a king was chasing after him. There's a time to flee. But you read Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, and Paul, he's telling his brothers, I'm going to Jerusalem. I might die there. They're most likely going to persecute me. The Holy Spirit tells me that every, pretty much every city I go into, I'm going to be persecuted for the faith. But that's okay. That's what I need to do. I need to get the gospel message out. And I believe that we need to have this same heart, this same mindset. One commentary states of Paul here in verse 10, that Paul is saying that I may be fully acquainted with his nature, his character, his work, and with the salvation which he has worked out. It is one of the highest objects of desire in the mind of the Christian to know Christ. It's something that we should continually strive for in our relationship with him. At the men's retreat, I read Philippians chapter 1, and I asked them, what do you think was the most important thing in Philippians chapter 1? I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but just come with me to the first six verses of Philippians. I don't want to take you to all 50 times where Paul uses the name of Jesus, but just look right out from the gate. Philippians Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like you can't help it, right? Just even right out from the beginning. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, over and over. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminded me of Tim Tebow when he was playing in the NFL years ago. He'd constantly talk about Jesus. He'd score a touchdown, he'd get on a knee. After the games, the reporter, hey, how'd your game go? I just want to say I love Jesus Christ. And it got to the point where they're like, this, all this guy wants to do is talk about Jesus. That's all he wants to do. And there was a former NFL player named, uh, named Jake Plummer who actually called him out. He said, why does this guy keep talking about Jesus? And he made a public stink about it and even wrote Tim Tebow, like, you don't need to talk about Jesus so much. And Tim Tebow said, if I love my wife, I'm going to talk about her. I'm going to tell people about her. She's constantly going to be on my mind. And how much more if I love Jesus Christ? Is he going to be on my mind all the time? Am I going to be talking about him all the time? And he said, thanks, Jake Plummer, but I'm going to keep telling people how much I love Jesus. And that's what I see here with the Apostle Paul. Fifty times in a short letter, Jesus over and over again. Read a couple more verses. Verse 3, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer 
with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now go to the end of the book. Let me just show you the last five verses or so. He begins with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ all throughout the middle of the book. Philippians 2 is all about Jesus Christ and how he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. He ends the book in verse 19. Chapter 4, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm pleading for us today, that we would understand the riches and glory in Christ Jesus, that nothing compares to knowing him. I think that's a song, right? Verse 20, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He just can't help talking about Jesus, and that's my hope for us, that he would constantly be on our hearts, our minds, and in our speech. And if you notice verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul's, like I said, winning Caesar's household over to Christ. He's in prison, and he can't help it. They know who's most important in his life. And if you read Acts chapter 16, when he's beaten up, he casts out a demon from this girl who's a fortune teller. Her master is not making money anymore. So they beat Paul up, they beat Silas up, they throw him in prison, and you know what he's doing while he's in prison? He's worshiping Jesus. He's singing hymns. And it said the jailers, those that were in prison with him, were listening, it says. They were listening on in. And God caused an earthquake to happen. The prison doors opened up. And the guy that was guarding this prison, do you know what he did? He got out a sword and was ready to kill himself. Because back then, if the prisoners got out, you were a dead man, right? Capital punishment. And Paul says, we're not going anywhere. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. And he gets saved, and him and his household are baptized that very night because Jesus was on Paul's lips at all times he could have complained in that prison why are they beating me up God why is this happening to me why am I getting thrown into jail right now for casting out a demon I'm do I'm preaching the gospel I'm getting the good news out and I get beat up and thrown in prison and this is what happens to me that happens with a lot of us right God why is this happening why does it instead of use it as an opportunity to continue to shine the light of Jesus Christ. How much more brightly does he shine in our lives when we're going through difficulty, through trials, through hardships, and yet we're still praising his name? Can you imagine when the world looks in at that, when people in this world are watching you and you're hurting and you're going through hardships and you're still praising him? Wow, that gives a great opportunity to share the gospel. Turn with me to Revelation 5. I'm losing track of time. I have no clue where I'm at, but that's okay. We're just getting deep into the Word today, looking at Jesus Christ. I plan on closing with this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. 
It says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside it, and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. So this is, this is the Apostle John. He says in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Who's worthy? The Greek word means to weigh. Who has the weight of or the worth? It also means value. Who has the matching value? Who is valuable enough for this great task? Who has the surpassing value worthy to open this book? And to break its seals. Look at verse 3. No one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Nobody. Verse 4. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John's weeping greatly. No one can do it. No one has the value. Until verse 5. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain to purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and a priest and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing in every created thing. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is where I want to close today. Jesus is worthy. He deserves all praise, all glory, all honor, all blessing. He has surpassing value. He is more valuable than anything. He is more precious than anything. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2.7, this precious value then is for you who believe. Is Jesus Christ precious to you? Is he more valuable to you than anything else in this world? Being a Christian means that we daily cast our cares upon him. We daily give everything, every part of our lives over to him and we lay it at the foot of, our, at the foot of the cross. Any worries, any anxieties, any difficulties, any trials, any tribulations, we lay it all down and we worship the king and we say, here it is. Thank you, Lord. 
thank you that you died on the cross for our sins, paid in full to tell us that it is finished. No more shame, no more guilt. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more condemnation, no more guilt. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's what it says here. Every created thing bowed to the name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. So with that, we're going to go ahead and take communion and remember what Jesus did for us.